I've been running in circles, jumping the hurdles, getting caught in that brush of doing so much, feeling kind of boring out. All these checking the boxes, trying to be flawless. Got me spinning in my head, catching my breath, too afraid to slow down. I tell myself to keep this up, God wants more than just my love. I've been complicating things, just like me to overthink. Last week, we talked about humbleness. Today, we're going to look at an extension of that teaching, which is service or servitude. The practical application of humbleness is service. In fact, that's how we sow humbleness into our lives is by serving others, right? Because if you think about it, when I serve another person, I place my needs beneath their needs, right? I mean, that that makes sense. If everybody take their Bibles and go to Romans chapter 12, we'll just remind ourselves of what humbleness is. You know, the world, of course, has a pretty lousy attitude on humbleness. Humbleness is, in a lot of people's minds, is weakness. And we don't see it that way. We see humbleness actually as a, as a great strength. So Romans 12, look at verse 3. For the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. So don't think too highly of yourself. Think soberly. You're humble. You recognize that what makes you great is not you, <laughs> that we are, we have, tr- we have treasures in earthen vessels. I'm the earthen vessel, but what makes me great is that treasure within. So when I keep that in mind, I stay humble, right? Uh, go to Philippians 2, Philippians 2, and look in verse 4, Philippians 2, verse 4. It says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So we are servants. We're servants. We're not just here to serve ourselves. We're here to serve others. So this is important. We live in a very self-serving and self-indulgent and self-promoting culture. And that's just not our character as Christians. It shouldn't be. And when you see these aspects start to pop up in your life, you might want to take a checkup, right? If I see myself promoting myself, you know, now, and we talked about it, there's, there's a proper understanding. I dress nicely, right? I conduct myself in a nice way. I don't go out and try to offend people, but I'm not promoting myself. Who am I promoting? Jesus Christ. Right, exactly. So vertically, we are sons of God, right? Vertically, that I I am a child of God. But in the horizontal ministry, I am a servant. I'm a servant. And that's a, that's a good way to think of it. I am a child of God, but I am a servant of Christ, and I'm a servant of mankind, okay? I serve the bread of life to mankind. I'm a servant of Christ. Christ is my boss, right? That's a good way to think about it. So... We're going to look at that today. As servants, we have a Lord. We have a Lord. Jesus is our Lord. He's also called our master in Scripture. Ooh, that has a, an ominous sound to it, doesn't it? Master, right? And when you think master, of course, you think slave. And in fact, if you read the Bible, you'll hear the, the word for servant translated in a lot of places as slave. 
And that's not entirely inaccurate. For You know, in the world, slavery is a horrible institution. There's nothing good about slavery. But with Christ, it's all good. It's a great thing. It's a great thing. Uh, one of the things I thought about is, you know, oftentimes, you know, we struggle with, well, when I pray, and I can pray to Jesus, and I can pray to God, who gets what prayer? This isn't a law, by the way. This is how it works for me. God gets all my prayers, and Christ gets my prayers of service. You know, when I'm talking things over in, in ministry, certainly I have affectionate prayers to Christ as well, but he... He's my go-to because he's my boss. We talk about doing things, implementing ministry. You know, how do I do this, Lord? You know, how did you bear up under that kind of pressure, Lord? Because I'm struggling with things like that as well. Do you understand that? So it's perhaps not the strongest of demarcations, but that's how I do it. I talk things over with my Lord. We have a ministry that we're bringing forward. I want to know what the Lord has to say about that. He's my master. I'm his servant in the horizontal ministry. So that's just kind of a rule of thumb I go by. Go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And look at verse 16. It says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves or servants, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. Okay. So we are offering. Now, the reason I would say servant works better in this verse is because it's a free will offering. And that's important, right? Our sacrifice in this administration isn't bulls and oxen and sheep and goats. It's ourselves. It's ourselves. And we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And that is certainly freedom of will. And that's what makes our service so wonderful is that it's a free will offering. I'm offering myself in service. And I think that's kind of cool. Go to Deuteronomy 15. And we're going to read through this section here, uh, the entirety. I could cut to the chase and get to the part about the service, but there's a lot of heart leading up to it, and I just wanted to read it. A lot of it is dealing with money back in the Old Testament times. Um, the institution of lending, right? People lend money. And when you lend somebody else money, you're expecting to get paid back, right? What's interesting is during uh, this period of time, when you lent money to somebody, you weren't supposed to charge interest. In fact, it was it was it was prohibited. Um, you don't have to go there. But Exodus twenty two twenty five says, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is in need, uh, do not be like the money lenders. Charge him no interest. So there's no interest that's charged when you're lending money. But in addition to that, in the section we're going to read about, that every seven years, what happened? Couldn't carry a debt more than the seven-year period. That all debts were forgiven after seven years. And and I really love that because God knew how onerous it was to be enslaved financially. Uh, it breaks up marriages. I mean, destroys households. And if you look at our culture, everything is built around that enslavement. Everything, the whole notion of credit cards, uh, our debt. I mean, our economy is built on debt. It's built on debt. How horrible is that? You know, it was interesting that even in Western Europe, all the way into the, I, I would say, 1300s, it was against the law to charge interest. And then they started doing this little sleight of hand thing, and pretty soon 
you had full-fledged moneylenders uh, charging full interest. And that's what we have today. So our culture, we call ourselves free, but people are enslaved in debt. That's not the way it should be. Deuteronomy 15, verse 1, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. Verse 2, this is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel the loan he has made to his fellow Israelite. He shall not require payment for his fellow Israelite or brother because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. Isn't that wonderful? You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt to your, that your brother owes you. However, there should be no poor among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. So, ba- you know, the basis of this whole financial establishment is the Lord's provision, right? That the Lord will provide for you. He will bless you. So don't lean to your own understanding and start charging interest. You see what I'm saying there? That the Lord will bless you. If you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow these commands that I am giving you today, for the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. Is that clear? What has our country done? We have borrowed so much money from China. It, it's just unbelievable. You know, I was thinking about it this morning when I was putting this t- teaching together, the outrage of Russia going into the Ukraine. It, and it's outrageous. Okay, so just so that we're clear on that, it's outrageous. But what about the outrage of the Uyghurs? Is everybody familiar with the Uyghurs? It's this group of people that the Chinese treat like indentured servants, not even indentured servants, just slaves. They have enslaved them. They kill them for their body parts. I mean, it's a horrible situation. And so many people in our country have been bought and paid for that they don't think it's that big of a deal. Our our politicians don't say anything. Why? Because we are in debt to our eyeballs with the Chinese. Bribe blindeth the eyes. But, you know, the interesting thing, my wife and I were talking about it the other day, that Saudi Arabia is being heavily courted by the Chinese. And so we can't be in energy independent. Why? Because we have to buy our oil from Saudi Arabia, keep them from selling their oil to China. I mean, it's a it's a crazy situation that you get yourself into when you depart from the clarity of the word. Others, nations will rule over you. Verse 7, if there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the lands that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near, so that you do not show ill will towards your needy brother and give him nothing. He may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. In other words, look, we're helping people with our lending. We're not trying to maneuver them into a situation, okay? And as you'll see here, as we read on, people who can't pay back their debts, what happens? They become an indentured servant. You can't do that if you're lending somebody, you know, money right before this seven-year period, right? And the point here is this. God is your sufficiency. God is your sufficiency, right? Verse 10, give generously to him 
and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Is that clear? (laughs) There will always be poor people in the land. Remember Jesus said that? The, The poor you will always have with you, and I'm not always with you. That's where he gets it from. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your brothers and towards the people and needy of your land. I saw this lady the other day. She had a T-shirt on that said, live generously, live generously. We should live generously. We, we should certainly live generously. Verse 12, if a fellow Hebrew, Hebrew, a man or a woman, sells himself to you and serves you six years, in the seventh year, you must let him go Free. Okay, so this is that indentured servitude, right? Indentured servitude. Somebody can't pay back a debt. Well, okay, then they need to they need to give it up and serve. You know, the um, in the eighteen seventeen hundreds in Europe, the poor houses. Anybody familiar with them? Horrible, horrible situations. When you were found to be a debtor, debtor's prison, you were thrown into these places. And you couldn't get out until you paid your debt. Just a horrible situation. Here, they were made servants. And they were brothers. You know, this, these were Israelites. So the commandment was you were to treat these servants well, right? But they had to work off their debt. You know, they couldn't just declare bankruptcy and be done with it. There was working off the debt. There was accountability. That's important. I think that's very important. We live in a culture now where people charge up debt. Declare bankruptcy and it's done. Well, that's not fair, is it? It says, uh, it says verse 13. And when you release him, do not send him away empty handed. Supply him liberally from your flock, your threshing floor and your wine press. Give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. Isn't this great? I love it. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That's the heart that you've been redeemed so you live life in a redemptive fashion, that you give, that you're generous because the Lord is generous to you. That is why I give you this command today. Now listen to this. This is so cool here. Verse 16, but if your servant says to you, I don't want to leave you because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, then take an all. Everybody know what an all is? It's a punch. You know, you put it there and you hit it with a hammer and it, it punches leather. Typically, that's what you use it for. You know, your belt has belt holes on it. They make the belt holes with an awl. Okay. So take an awl and push it through his earlobe onto the door. It's the mark. I know it sounds pretty gruesome, but you know, remember women get their ears pierced. So it's just a little bigger hole. Uh, and he will become your servant for life. Do the same for your maid servant. Do not consider it a hardship to set your servant free, because his service to you these six years has been worth twice as much as that of a hired hand, and the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. Isn't that wonderful? It's just great. In um, Exodus, it has a similar command, and it talks about, you know, if, if this person has developed a family while in captivity, the family goes with them. That was one of the most evil aspects of the African slave trade was how they just broke families up and didn't think twice about it. That was just horrible, horrible situation. So the point here is this. It's freedom of will for this person who chooses to stay on. He he says, okay, you know, I've 
fulfill my duty, but I love my master and I want to be a bond servant for life. And that's my point here is that our servitude to the Lord is free will. It's not something that we are compelled to do or forced to do. There are no forced conversions with this group. We love our master. So Jesus is our master. He's our Lord. And I thought about the term Lord. You know, the, the church, the ecumenical church, you know, has attached this, you know, kind of churchy meaning to Lord. Lord just means boss. That's all it means. It means boss. But it it is a different kind of bossness, right? It's different. It's not about being dictatorial and ruling. Let's go to John chapter 13, John 13. You know, there is a very worldly notion of the boss, that the boss gets to tell everybody else what to do. John chapter 13, look in verse 3. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come to God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, bless his heart, <laughs> who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus said, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, the one who typically spoke first and thought later. Uh, he said, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well, which I just love. Uh, Simon Peter, he's, he's a guy, quite a guy, so much like me. All right. I should say I'm so much like him. Verse 10, Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. You are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. So he's, he's cleaning them, but there was a deeper meaning. Right. And what was the deeper meaning that this group of people, he was trying to keep spiritually clean, spiritually clean. And that's the job, of course, of a pastor or a minister is that when he has people coming to his fellowship, of course, he's taking care of them. But it's even bigger than that. It's that that's the job of each one of us. If, you know, somebody in this fellowship sees that I'm not keeping it tight spiritually, I hope to hear of them on the phone, right? Give me a phone call because I'm not beyond making some mistakes, okay? The point here is that we take care of one another. We're willing to serve. We're willing to get down on our hands and knees and do what it takes to help keep people blessed and clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's exactly what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. What an example, huh? I mean, think about that. If he had gotten up there and said, okay, now I want you guys to keep each other clean, and then moved on to something else. That wouldn't have had any impact. But what did he do? He got down and he actually cleaned their feet. I know. I know what an impact that visual had for them. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. 
I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the ones who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you what? Do them. Do them. Very important for a servant, right? See, there's a lot of scribes in Christianity who sit around and learn, 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 learn. We need servants. We need people who are going to learn and then do. The greatest among you is the greatest servant. And I've said this before in fellowship, but, you know, when you walk into a fellowship or a church, you ought to be able to distinguish the pastor from everybody else by one thing and one thing only, that he's the one serving the most, that he's getting involved in getting into people's lives and he's calling them on the phone and and he's helping out in the bake sale and, you know, whatever. He's the one who feels the the obligation, a godly obligation to do, to get in there and help and bless. Now, if you look at church history, that's not always how it worked out. There were plenty of popes who liked to sit around and put the ring out so somebody could kiss it, right? And that's just not how Jesus operated. Uh, go to Matthew chapter 20, Matthew 20, and look at verse 25. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, right? You got this pecking order, this hierarchy. Verse 26, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Doesn't that get you that Jesus dying on the cross was the greatest act of service ever? He didn't do that for himself. When Jesus said to God, not my will, but thine be done, that's service. That's service. So when we talk about humbleness, humbleness is service, that I would place my needs, my desires, my wants under the needs of others, and that I am obedient to my Lord. That's another word, by the way, that people don't typically like, obedience. But when you understand that your Lord is good, how often? Always. Then obedience becomes a blessing, not a, you know, an onerous, you know, obligation. We subordinate ourselves to our masters and we submit ourselves to other people in the sense that we are serving them. We're helping them. He goes on to say, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Verse 21. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. And and so what he's saying is he's he's saying, look, I'm a servant of God. People who hate me hate God, right? And you're my servants, and those who hurt, hate you hate me, right? And that's how it works. Jesus said, you know, they were happy in their sin, but I came along and exposed their sin, and that's why they hate me. And that's the truth here. That's the truth. People hate you without a cause. Why? Because you're just speaking the truth, and people don't want to hear it. That's just a stating the facts of the case. So that's something to keep in mind, servants, that sometimes people will hate you for your service. It's something you got to get used to. Go to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew 7. I'm looking at verse 21. 
It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he that, what, does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Remember that. So it's the doing of it. It's not the saying of it. It's the doing of it. Verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So I I love this record because it really shows that the Lordship of Jesus Christ is not just something that you say. You know, when we got born again, how does it go? For if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're saved. But there's plenty of people who love Jesus as their Savior but are not willing to recognize him as their Lord, that they just say that and they're not willing to take it to the next step and actually make that a reality, right? They still think that they have skin in this game here on earth called, you know, mortal life. And they don't realize that their their lives have been bought with a price. They are no longer their own. They, they are that servant who is, you know, getting his ear all. They, they just need to recognize that, look, it's time to ante up out of your free will that you love your master, that your master has done all this for you. And now it's your turn to give your life as a living sacrifice. Go to Philippians 2. Now, as we've already noted in this teaching, Jesus didn't leave us without an example. Remember last week we were talking about, you know, you humble yourself or if you exalt yourself, God will humble you. But if you humble yourself, God will exalt you. It's it's used. I mean, that that figure, it's not really a figure, I guess, but that phrase is used. We looked at three instances of it, right? Well, it it gets used here too. So it says in verse one, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if there's any comfort in his love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if there's any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and one in purpose. Do nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, humbleness. Consider others better than yourselves. That's really clear, isn't it? Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vainglory. I mean, we live in a culture that thrives on it. Self-promotion. Look at me. Look at me. Each of you should look not only on your own interests, but also on the interests of others. You know, this isn't this isn't one of these, uh, you know, what do they call it? Um, at the term they use, um, you know, the monks would subject themselves to, uh, you know, deprivation. They would deprive themselves of anything, you know, that tasted good or that smelled good. They took vows of chastity and vows of, you know, poverty and. And it became a, a really self-indulgent thing. In the name of getting rid of self-indulgence, they indulged themselves in their depravity. It's, it was a, I mean, it was a weird twist on self-indulgence. But we're called to place others of more significance than ourselves, to help other people, to serve other people, to think about other people. Think about how much time before you were a Christian you spent thinking about yourself. Most of my time, it was me, 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 me. Well, that's not how we're supposed to be. 
I tell you, you know, I, I just look at Virgil. He's just, what a great example to any of us. He's fighting cancer, and what is he doing? My wife and I go out to see him, and when we were out to see him, he did, he barely talked about his situation. He was talking about us. How are you guys doing? Bless you. You know, I'm very thankful. I love you guys. I mean, that's the true servant of Christ. And that's the example that he sets for all of us. I mean, that's my takeaway. And that's what God has called us to. It's, uh, it, it, and, and we're so blessed to have that, that example. I can't even tell you. Look at verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. How about that? Who being, and then he launched into this whole translation thing, and it's wrong. Who being in very nature God, that's not what it says. It says who being in the form of God, meaning God's Son with his divine position and authority. Jesus Christ was an agent of God. Agency. Remember that? We read it all through the Gospels that he came with a mission, and it was a divine mission. So, who being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something that he wanted to grasp after. And what, you know, that's a little strange to our ears. Who grasped after equality with God? Well, certainly Lucifer did, and then Adam did as well, right? But Jesus didn't. He didn't grasp after it. He didn't have that selfish ambition and that desire for vainglory, right? What did he do in contrast? He emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Isn't that wonderful? So when it says in a word, let this mind be in you that was in Christ, this is what it's talking about. He emptied himself of what? of a desire for a reputation, of a desire for, or, uh, or of self-centeredness, of ambition, of a need for recognition and personal glory, of self-willness and self-determination, of any obstinance and resentment of authority, that he put this whole selfish ambition thing aside. He emptied himself of it, and he became a servant. Verse 8, and being found in the appearance as a man, he what? Humbled himself and became what? Obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Isn't that wonderful? You know, you think about it, the world says that humbleness is weakness. His humbleness, what happened? I mean, when God exalted him, he became the mightiest of the mighty. Verse 9, therefore God exalted him. God exalted him. God exalted him to the highest place. God did the exalting, not Jesus. That's what's being taught here. Not that Jesus is God, that God exalts when we humble. When we humble ourselves, God exalts us. And he gave him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That means the horizontal application of what you're learning. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Isn't that beautiful? It's service. I think about um, 
you don't have to turn there, but in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, it says, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. How important is that? Our service has got to be done heartily. It goes on in verse 14. Do everything without complaining and arguing. Now, I think that's part of the human nature, human condition, isn't it? We all want to bitch and moan about stuff. We all do. So what is the antidote to bitching and moaning? Gratitude and that you see yourself as a servant of Christ, right? Remember the the, the servant who comes to the master and says, you know, I want that hole put in my ear because I love you so much and because I'm blessed with being here. Well, that's how we've got to be. That's our service that God provides for us. And then, you know, then we walk forth in service. There are so many Christian ministers who burn out and they burn out because they stopped going this way for, for, you know, providence, you know, providing for them. And, and they're constantly giving, giving, giving. And, and if they're not getting and they're always giving, then their service becomes something they start to resent even. I mean, and, and I know I've been there where, you know, you walk away. My wife has heard me say, I, I give, 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 and nobody ever does a thing for me. Well, they're not supposed to. That's not the, you got it all wrong. He's doing for you. You're doing for them. That's, that's the arrangement, <laughs> right? That's the arrangement. So when my wife hears me say that, then she lovingly corrects me. And focuses me back on, look, you, you need to get your head right here. Your head's wrong. You shouldn't be looking to people to get. You should be looking to people to give. If you think about our marriages, our marriages would be more blessed if I'm looking at my spouse to give rather than to get. That's where things start breaking down when I say, well, you're not doing this and this and this for me. Right? We need to be servants. We need to be servants. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine as stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. Isn't that great? Great. Go to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14. And look in verse 7. It says, For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. That's the purpose. Isn't that something? That's the purpose. Romans 16. Romans 16. Look at verse 17. It says, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. 
And that, that naive is probably a bad translation. It's just innocent people. You know, people who, they're not going around looking around every corner for a spirit. There's spirits everywhere. No, they're, they're humble. They're, they're trusting. And then somebody comes in and it's all about them. They come into the fellowship, look at me, look at me or mine. And what do they do? They start dividing up. You know, they start becoming critical. They have that ambition and that's, that's harmful to the body. And it says in a word that we're supposed to stand against people like that. And that's what the word says, right? I was thinking too, um, about making Jesus our Lord. We're happy to make him our savior, but we don't care much to make him our Lord. But there was this guy, uh, Matt Smethurst. He said, when we say that we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus, we must remember what happened to the hands and feet of Jesus, right? That he endured. And we've got to be willing to endure that everything isn't necessarily going to be fun or rewarding in the, in the immediate sense. That a lot of times it requires endurance that you have to push through. Go to second Corinthians chapter 11, second Corinthians. Being a servant of God is a commitment. It's a commitment. And look in verse 19, 11, 19. It says, you gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. This is very tongue in cheek, right? In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we are too weak for that. What anyone else dares to boast about and I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. See, he's matching them point by point, right? Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I'm more. I have worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely and been exposed to death Again and again, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Can you imagine what his back must have looked like? I'm just horrible. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, from uh, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brethren. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. How about that? I mean, that gives you goosebumps. What he had to endure in his servants service for Christ. And, you know, it's a reminder for all of us. You know, I'm not beyond pettiness myself. And there have been times where I want to throw my hands up and say, I'm done with this nonsense and want to walk away. But then I read a record like this and I'm thinking, yeah, you know, what, what's that record, that proverb that says, if thou faintest in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. Thy strength is small. 
We haven't resisted under blood, Hebrews 12, exactly. And it, it behooves us when we are feeling, you know, funky like that, that other people had to endure for the faith and, and sally on, you know, push on. That's what God, God has called us to. And I think about him. He, he's going through all this. And then in addition to this, he's got to care for the churches. He was an itinerant minister. He had to take care of the administrative needs of the churches. You know, it was like, you know, an axe when, you know, they had Stephen come in to take care of the daily ministration of the widows, you know, things like that. He had to do that and endure beatings and drownings and everything else. That's that was the job. So we have to keep that in mind that, you know, this is a big calling we've been called to go to first Corinthians chapter nine. And why does he do that? Listen to this. Verse 16, it says, yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast. For I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I pre if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me. And you know, I tell you, this is the mark of the true servant of Christ that you have a ministry, and woe to you if you don't do it. <laughs> and that's really what it is. It's a trust. God has entrusted you with a ministry. It would be a lot easier not to do it. It would be a lot easier to do it and get paid for it. It would be, you know, you see what I'm saying. There were, there can be a lot of different conditions, but the point comes down to it. Look, you know, everybody else may fall away and decide to do something else. Not me. I'm doing it because the Lord has called me to do it. Woe unto me if I don't do it. You know, I, it, it kills me when I see that men and women are ordained into Christian ministry and then they walk away from their ordination. It's baffling, baffling to me, but not, not so, so entirely baffling because you know, the temptation's there for me, too, right? We know how the, how the seducer can seduce you away from your God-given calling, and we need to resist. Verse 17, if I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What, then, is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. That's the servant. Isn't that wonderful? That's the servant. Verse 20. To the Jews, I make myself a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I make myself like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. How about that? that these are good verses, by the way, when you hook up with one of those Judaizers, which I've been hooking up with lately. It says, so as to win those not having the law to the weak, I became weak. To win the week, I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel and I may share in its blessings. How about that? Isn't that beautiful? Galatians chapter one. We're wrapping it up here. I hope this is blessing you guys. Galatians one, an important aspect of a servant. Verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? 
If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Is that clear to everybody? We have got to have that single-hearted devotion to Christ. You cannot serve two masters. You can't serve Christ and man. Each has its expectations, right? Mankind has his expectations. God has his. I can't serve both. I can't claim that Jesus is Lord and at the same time be ashamed of the gospel. And I see so many Christians who are like that. There is only one proper response of the true servant of Christ, that you faithfully and boldly bear witness to the Lord Christ. That's it. That's it. That's that's what the job calls for. Romans 14 and in verse 4, Romans 14, 4, it says, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. He will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. I, I included this verse here because it shows the independence of true service, that the Lord and I have a job to do, and it doesn't include anybody else. And that includes my wife, and, and her service doesn't include me. I mean, if, and I want you to understand that. I, I, that needs some discussion. Our service is to our Lord together, right? I mean, she helps me be the best servant I can be, and I help her. But ultimately, what it comes down to is, you know, it's the Lord and me, and it's the Lord and her. And it's for every one of us. We all serve the Lord independently of each other, right? And I love what he says here. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? And we have to keep that in mind. Go to Romans 7. Romans 7. Verse 5, it says, for when we were controlled, I don't like that word control, we were directed by the sinful nature. I guess control would work there. We were slaves to sin. The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. So before we got saved, we were slaves, right? We were servants, but we were servants to sin. But now, by dying to what once bound us, We have been released from the law so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. How about that? So we have been, you know, made free from the law, from the flesh. This is something that these folks who are Judaizers that I've been dealing with, they can't see it. They cannot see this. It's only by walking by the spirit that I am truly a servant of Christ. Everything else is a sham. Walking by the Spirit, that's true service. That as, you know, that the Spirit of God worketh in me both the will and to do of his good pleasure. Or I should say, God worketh in me both the will and to do of his good pleasure. That's true service. True service. And we're going to finish in Colossians chapter 3. And look in verse 23. 3.23, it says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. That beautiful? All right, well, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. And Father and Lord, we just ask you to help us put away our self-centeredness and our selfishness and just rise up to be the servants that we've been called to be, that we are not ashamed of this gospel, that we are just 
fascinated and just enthralled with your goodness and your greatness. And we just desire nothing but to hold forth that bread of life so that others can know you. We thank you, Father and Lord, for just continuing to help us in our quest to to do this and to be more like Christ. Amen. Gotta keep it real simple, keep it real simple, bring everything right back to ground zero, cause it all comes down to this, love God and love people, we're living in a world that keeps breaking, but if we want to find a way to change it, it all comes down to this, love God and love people, all this is freedom, it's Christ in the Love is all we need to make things right. Gotta keep it real.